Hello and welcome to Weird Together. I'm Brenna Storr, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Camo, host of The Cardinal Rule. And this is a show where we celebrate the latest and greatest in independent horror films. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Joseph, my friend, how are you? I am great. I am thriving, uh, as uh, my therapist says. Uh, but, you know, we had a... <laughs> You know, we, we caught up this weekend. You know, you just got back not too long ago from being out of the country. A lot of stuff going on in my life that you and I have been talking about. And so, we, you know, we obviously had a good chance to catch up. But a lot of things going well. I'm enjoying teaching in a way that's just kind of renewed. I will say, though, I had an interesting class today. So I'm teaching an intro to sociology class. Did I mention I have a PhD? Did I mention No, that, it's never come up. This is <laughs> yeah, catching me completely off guard. <laughs> completely off guard. Uh, and uh, we were teaching about deviance, and I thought I'd do this new thing where I like had my students come up, okay, a list of things that socially would be considered deviant, and that list kind of worried me <laughs> into the oh, psyche no. of my freshman. I mean, it was fun. The class is a fun group of kids, but they're like kicking a cane from, taking a cane away from a blind person, like knocking over an elderly person. I'm like, there's levels of deviance you could get to before you get to these kinds of things. Um, I meant so smoking, anyway, guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, stealing a candy bar? I mean, you know. Yeah, I, was so. thinking, I was thinking Dennis the Menace. You guys went full clockwork orange. <laughs> right? So uh, if you're worried about, you know, the, the generation that's coming up in that 18 to 22 range, yeah, you have reason to be. But anyway. That's so fair. How are you, that's well, I'm not looking at the weather forecast for dystopia, so that helps. <laughs> uh, I, I'm very tired, Joseph. I've been working a lot lately. I'm looking forward to not working a lot. The last of my major social obligations is, is coming up my sister's wedding, which it's not an obligation. I'm very much looking forward to it. But, you know, I, I was away for two weeks. And so obviously, you know, the timeline for getting all the shows out gets compressed. And then obviously I'm going away again this weekend. And the weekend is typically when I do a lot of my editing. So, yeah, it's been tight. But um, again, it's coming to the end of it. I'm slowly trying to hash out this move to London, Ontario, which is gradually coming together. Nothing's happening yet. I, I've contacted a thousand and one landlords. Apparently, they're all making so much money they don't have to pick up the phone, which it sounds like a, a great situation. So uh, <laughs> I'm in the wrong business, my friend. No, clearly. Real quick, let's say hey to some of the folks that are in the chat. We've got Rin Lemieux always hanging out with us. Good evening. Thank you for being hey, with Rin. us, Rin. And we've got Derek uh, Street Ray hanging out with us. Good evening, Hello, gentlemen. Derek. Appreciate you hanging out with us. But we have a film to talk about, don't we, Brent? Indeed we do. Yes. We have a film that really, really shook me. I think I've, I've reacted more emotionally to this film than I have any other one we've done. And that film is Ryan Stephen Harris's Moon Garden. And Moon Garden tells a story of Emma. A young girl has suffered a, an injury and must journey across the land of her psyche as she lays in a coma in order to get back to her family. There's a lot going on here, Joseph, a lot to talk about. But of course, before we can talk about the film, we got to do that thing we do. Because you never go into any film alone. You never go into any film completely clear. Always have a little baggage. <laughs> All right, Joseph. So what, if any, baggage did you have going into Moon Garden? So I didn't have really any to speak of aside from my initial impressions of the title and the poster art, which I thought were kind of unique. I thought, okay, this has some potential to seem with a title like Moon Garden. It's not, you know, the murderous cabin 
or in the woods or something. Right, it, yeah. it seems like there's going to be maybe some sort of artistic kind of thought process to it. Uh, you know, obviously going into it then, being a father and some of my own family experiences certainly are something that could have potentially been a triggering point for this. It seems like it impacted you more than it did me in those regards. Which really surprised me. I, I don't have kids. You know, I don't have any small children in my life. I mean, my niece is 14, I think, if I remember right. I'm, I'm not good at this stuff. My niece and nephew on my wife's side are, are also, they're not really little. Yeah, wouldn't have ex- expected it. But again, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, for me, I didn't have much baggage either. This was recommended to me by Luke Greensmith, who's a colleague of mine. He hosts the Luke Lore podcast. Uh, in fact, some of our new listeners might have found us via Luke Lore. We had a feed drop episode over there um, last month, or earlier this month, I guess it was. Time has lost all meaning. But yeah, Luke is in the UK, and he saw this, I believe, at Grimfest last fall. And he spoke very highly of it. He, he mentioned it to me several times, and I've been meaning to to get it in the show. And it's just one of those things where, you know, an opportunity hadn't presented itself. Uh, I finally got around to watching it. And as I mentioned, it had a profound effect. But apart from that, I'm not really familiar with Ryan Stevens Harris's work. I know he was editor on Moonfall, which I have not seen, but I would dearly like to. Uh, and he was also the editor on The Hard Way, which is a direct-to-video action film I've seen, which is not amazing, but that was not down to him. Uh, this is the first of his directorial efforts I've seen. Uh, the other one being, I think, Virus X from 2010. And again, I, I have not seen that. But uh, I'm very curious to talk about this one with you, Joseph. And of course, there's only one place we can do such a thing, and that's the Toctagon. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter, two men leave. All right, Joseph, let's get started. What did you think of Moon Garden? I rather liked this film. I thought it was ambitious, had sort of an enveloping artistic vision that I really appreciated. In general, I really enjoyed it. I mean, you know, there were a few warts here and there, but uh, pretty well from the beginning, something about this kind of grabbed me. Even the the opening shot, the kind of the, the panned over the couple in the bed was kind of a unique opening shot. And then once the girl was transported into this other realm, her psyche. The thought in my head is, this is ambitious. I like it. I'm into this. Yeah, it was very ambitious. It took me a minute to sort of find its level. I'll admit, you know, I started watching it and I thought, "Ah, I don't know. You know, I really want to like this because Luke recommended it. But once it really started moving, I I was hooked. And, you know, it actually brought up some stuff for me, which I wasn't expecting. What I wanted to focus on is just the sheer invention involved, like the uh, a little ways into her her coma voyage, Emma meets a man credited as the musician. Essentially, he plays us a, a tune for her that her and her mother used to sing together. But in order to do that, he creates a, a piano or an organ that's done by reversing the destruction of it with a sledgehammer. Right. You get and one it, shot for that scene too. You really do. Yeah. I mean, in, in fairness, you know, in my experience, you're going to break a piano. You got to break it fast and get out of there. But that's, <laughs> that's not here nor there. Well, that's yeah, in your experience, you say. If, right? if anyone asks, I've been with, I was with you all night. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but uh, I can't imagine they had much money to work with. And again, just this, it's a relatively simple effect. Just run it in reverse, but it worked. And then the scene that followed where, where Emma and her mother sing the song. Again, I cry. I don't mind telling you, I cried a lot. During this movie, I cried 
hard at some points during this movie, and that was very much one place that just wrecked me, was Emma remembering better times with her mother as they sang this song together. It just, oh, just destroyed me. Yeah, and we were talking about that, you know, just, it is interesting to me because I, you know, based on my own experience in my own family, things, there were certain things in this film, like the couple and their, their struggles that certainly could have been triggering for me, being a parent and the fear that you have. And those things didn't trigger me really all that much. So, so it's, it's fascinating that you that those things did so impact you. And I, I don't know if it's maybe you're just not used to worrying about kids, whereas my life is every day worrying about those little goblins that I'm responsible for making sure that they're okay. Um, so maybe it's just that you weren't used to it. You did also mention it connected to some other things. So that was really interesting when, when you mentioned to me how, how it impacted you that way. Uh, so just answered uh, Derek's question because yeah. it popped up and I can't not see it. I don't know how old Haven Lee Harris is. Uh, I can't imagine very old. I'm bad at guessing kids' ages. Joseph, any, any guesses? I would guess the actor was four or five years old. Maybe. Okay, that, that's what I would have guessed. Yeah, maybe younger, but probably around there. And she was exceptional. She was so good and believable in every scene. The scene, the scene where she's in the bucket. And she's pulled into the water, biting my nails, you know, just in absolute terror. She sold it the entire time and was just very, very good. I think you might be onto something, you know, in, in that I, since I don't have to worry about kids, I maybe overestimate their like fragility. And I, I think I've always done that because I've always been a pretty strong person. It, I don't seem it, but I, I'm, I like to joke, we're Italian peasant stock. We're built to work. <laughs> we're built for labor. And so I can go and go and go. And it, it just, you know, like it catches up to me eventually if I'm not, if I'm stupid about it, which I often am. But, but I've, I always assume that kids are very soft. And so I'm always worried about hurting them with my gorilla strength, you know, like picking up kids. I don't like picking up kids if I can help it. I, I'm always nervous holding babies, you know, and things like this. And I, when I was younger, I really used to like kind of like watch over my sister very intently. You know, she was four years younger than I was. And again, I, I remember someone once telling me like, she's not glass. She's going to be fine. And I was like, okay, I, I guess. But yeah, so I think that definitely has something to do with it. But as I mentioned to you, the thing that, that kind of really knocked me when, we, when I first watched it was the scene where they, of course, put Emma on the, the board, where they strap her to the board because she's had a, a you know, spinal injury or you know, potentially like a, a head injury. And when I was much, maybe about 20 years ago now, some friends of mine lost their, their infant. It's their story to tell, so I'm not going to get too deeply into it, but it was a very sudden thing. And I just, again, I, you know, I, I kind of went through it and there's grief and, and, you know, we all kind of grieved it together. And I hadn't thought about it in years, but seeing her strapped to that board, all of a sudden, man, I, I just felt this, not even a flood of emotion. It, it wasn't that simple, but this just, it was like, like something, like a bookcase moved uh, in my mind and all this crap came tumbling out because I just suddenly saw that little white coffin at the funeral. It was, yeah, it was just, it was a really unexpected connection for me uh, and I found it really upsetting. And that scene that you referenced when they're taking the girl away on the board, the mother yelling at the, you know, the paramedics, don't let her die, you know, kind of the desperation right? As a parent, you just think about being in a situation where you're like, 
you can't do anything and you're just begging them to do what they're obviously going to do everything they can, but you're just pleading almost at the universe and at them and at whoever will listen, right? That how important this is. So uh, Modest Moose, uh, 1983, has a very kind of thoughtful comment here. Watching the trailer after I finally got to catch a live recording of you guys, one of my three offspring is turning five in two weeks. I would need to dissociate to watch this or wait 10 years. I feel <laughs> yeah. that, you know? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> and Derek is, is an awful human. I'm just kidding, Derek. <laughs> just kidding, Derek. Too hard at her falling down the stairs, just the way it was shot. You know, so yeah, I mean, you know. I but, imagine it's hard to shoot a stun shot of a five-year-old falling down the stairs. Yeah. It didn't look super realistic, I guess. There's not exactly a five-year-old stunt person who's trained <laughs> to do that. Um, so if, they yeah. are, if there is, I want to see a movie about them, frankly. Right. Just a documentary about that. This is Haley. She... It's a five-year-old son person. She's smoking. <laughs> yeah, I got into the business when I was three. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah. So, yeah, that was definitely impactful. And, you know, it, it was also interesting because you talked about children. They're, they're much more resilient than sometimes we think they are. And they're not as strong, but they're also not as heavy. So they fall and they bounce and they're okay <laughs> usually. And they're you know, just a little more resilient. It's funny because it, obviously having just been in England, you know, Nikki and I were walking around. At one point we ended up in a skate park and it, it's a park that's been there for a long time. Uh, it's a town she grew up in and, you know, these kids are just, they're just doing their thing. And she said, I, I just watched them and she said, I cringe because I just imagine hitting the ground and every one of my bones just exploding out of my body. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what would happen to us. There would be just a, a sickening thud and then silence. Crunch. Yeah. But these kids just <laughs> bounced around like they're made a. They're like, they're made of rubber and it's, you know, as you say, they're just, they're built different as the yes. kids say. Yeah. You know, one of the things, and you talked about, you know, the main character, the girl, and it was interesting, like, because as she was venturing through this sort of world, you know, she was scared at points, but she was also finding moments of joy and, and the character, you know, how the character just kind of forged ahead, just not knowing exactly maybe where she was or what was going on, but she just was like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to, you know, ride the, the giant rhinoceros, uh, creature, uh, you know, and things like this. So it was just interesting to see not only the physical kind of resilience, but also kind of the emotional resilience of, of this character. Yeah. And, and I think that's, I mean, again, I, I don't have kids, so, you know, I'm talking to my ass a little bit, but I think that's true of kids, right? I mean, what I remember myself being a kid, you can find joy in, in a lot of stuff. You know, like you're, you're, I think, unless there's something really wrong with your chemistry, I think you're kind of hardwired to do that. I think you have to be, because otherwise dealing with the bullshit of the world, even at that age is, is going to, is going to drag you down. And so I think that was a really, yeah, effective, effective, um, what's the exploration of that? I mean, I love the scene again, where she's guiding around that giant paper mache rhino, you know, conversely though, like it, it was really difficult to watch the scenes where she had to deal with pain. Uh, the one that wrecked me was when she ends up in the kind of like the dining, the banquet room with the bride and groom. And at first they're, they're dancing on the table and it's fun and they're kicking, they start kicking things off the table and it actually still just seems, still seems fun. And then they really start kicking things off the table and it's upsetting for her. And watching that little girl try and clean everything up to make it okay again. Oh, dude, I just, I lost my stinking mind. I just, lo I lost it. 
again, because I, I think maybe because I perhaps identify that with that to a certain degree, you know, this idea that they just want everything to be okay. And the kid will do anything they can to make it okay. And, and they can't, right? But that's not within their frame of reference. They, they just think, well, maybe if I do enough of the things, it'll be okay. And that broke my heart. You know, that didn't, that didn't strike me that way. But now that you mention it, because now it's, it's kind of drumming up connections and thinking about like, you know, a child, like, and I've shared this with you, you know, my parents got divorced when I was 13 and it was a little ugly. And, and so, you know, how, how being a kid and I wasn't, obviously I was older than this character, much older, but still like thinking about a child in a messy parent situation, like she was in and when the parents don't have their shit together and are fighting and then the child feeling like the a responsibility to try to pick up the pieces or clean it up or even help the parents not fight, you know, mommy, daddy, love each other, yeah. you know, and, and just kind of that, just putting yourself in the place of that child and just, you know, right now, as I think about that, that's very moving and, and, you know, saddening, right? So that's a really interesting kind of connection there. Well, the scene where her and her mother are under the covers, you know, and her mother obviously is dealing with some depression. She's sleeping in, you know, what does the father feel? She's sleeping in too much. And he tries to, you know, wake her up. But prior to that, her, the mother and the daughter, they're under the bed and she's saying, well, she's trying to get the daughter to fall asleep so she can just stay in bed. And she tells her to describe her perfect day and she's describing it, but there, there's no mention of her father. And so the mother says, well, where's daddy? And she said, well, he makes you, he makes you sad. So he's not there. And again, it just, oh Lord, the actress, yeah, Augie Duke plays the mother and, and she just, the, the look on her face, you know, the, this, the, the sort of the realization that the kid sees more than she thinks she does. You know, because I, I, I do think people sometimes sort of assume kids are dumb or that kids aren't paying attention. And in actual fact, you know, as you know, I mean, kids hoover up more information than than we think they do. That and you're that is completely accurate. Like my two sons, like just the things that they pick up on them. Oh, wow. You did hear me say that and you repeated that. Maybe I should have thought about that <laughs> yeah. before I said that. Another thing that kind of stood out to me. That's related to also the, the kind of parent when the film first started, it, it seemed like it, it looked like it was setting it up as kind of maybe a, a domestic abuse situation is, you know, with them exiting. And I actually appreciated that it, they didn't go in that direction. Obviously, that is a very real thing. It's, it's nothing to take lightly, but there are many relationships that aren't that. And what, what I saw as it got deeper into the story is sort of a broken marriage with two people who had their own flaws. And I, I didn't see either of them as, like she had her depression, she kind of said some, some unkind things to him when he brought her the tea, right? And he was trying to do at least something. But then he also didn't give them the time and he was so wrapped up in his deadlines. And they were both flawed and they were both kind of, you know, had some stake in what it had become. And I, I kind of thought that was even maybe a little as sad and unfortunate as a little refreshing that it wasn't kind of the cliche, oh, he's an abuser or something like that. Oh, yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I wasn't sure. And, and to be honest, I think that was part of the weird fit for me at the beginning because I was waiting for it to lean one way or the other. I was waiting for the film to, maybe just because I've, I've watched so much trash, I was waiting for the film to tell me how to feel essentially. You know, I was waiting for it to tell me like, oh, this is a good guy. This is a bad guy. You know, he is, a, he is this, she is that. One of the things that I, f I was going to bring up earlier and it slipped my mind 
was I thought they were going to try and play the medical part of it for more drama. The mother at first did, she refused this, the ECMO treatment because she said, you know, you try and cut into my daughter. You try, you see what happens. And it's that misplaced protection, right? The doctor's just trying to do everything they can to help bring her back. But, you know, there is this kind of conditioned protection response, which, which I understand. And again, I, I thought they were going to try and wring more drama out of that or maybe make like she tries to stop them at the last minute and it turns out that would have been the wrong thing to do. And I was really, again, I was, I was relieved they didn't do that because it's so cliche. And again, I, I think it goes to that no one is the villain. They're both flawed. Right. But they're both good parents. They're bad partners, but good parents, right? Both of them, I think. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think he's definitely got issues with anger Yeah, that affect her view of him. I, I would say like they're both. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't even say they're both good parents, to be honest with you. Okay. I don't think they they're are. Bo- they both love their daughter. <laughs> Maybe that's they, more They love fair. their daughter. <laughs> I would say they love their daughter. Yeah, I don't yeah. think either of them are good parents. I think they're both yeah. too wrapped up based that's on what we fair. see in the film. I think they're both too wrapped up in, in themselves to properly take care of her because I, I mean, and now again, I don't know, but I think it's your job to shield your child as much as possible from the bullshit of the world, you know, from, and for, especially from your own bullshit, you know, like I think that, yeah, for example, if I'm pissed off at someone in public, if someone cuts me off in traffic, if I see they're with a kid, I won't do anything about it. You know, or if I see, I'll be extra nice. If someone's with a kid and I am interacting with them, I'll be nicer to them than I ordinarily would because I like the idea of preserving the notion, at least with this one kid, that people in the world are nice to each other. I really dislike this notion that we have to, we got to toughen them up. You know, it's it's an ugly world out there. You better learn. No, no, no. The world's going to do that soon enough. All you're teaching this kid is that they can't trust you. All you're teaching this kid is being a, a garbage person. I think there's a middle path in being a parent kind of at least from my experience. And it's not that you toughen them up, but you do equip them and prepare them. And sometimes that that doesn't come by exposing them to that kind of treatment from you, but it does involve talking about it, uh, making them aware that people aren't always nice and why they aren't nice. Oh, um, yeah, I agree completely about that. I just mean you don't let them see that you and your wife hate each other and you like mom and dad are like, dad's tearing apart the blanket while they're underneath it that's that's bad you know if if the kid or or when she walks in on them screaming at each other at the beginning of the film i mean my wife works in um she works in a place where they deal a lot with separation and, and family justice and things like this and the number of stories i hear always you know very very circumspect stories but of people who use their kids as pawns in these kinds of things. And, and they, they try to turn their kid against each other, you know? And, and, and I just think, no, no, that's monstrous. It is your job to pretend like everything's fine. Like, okay, we're not together. Everything's good. You don't have to worry about it. It doesn't affect you. You will be loved and taken care of no matter what. But that, I mean, I guess you don't, you don't end up at that place if things are going well, but yeah, that doesn't often seem to be the case. I, I, what I would say is, and obviously we've talked off air about kind of my own experiences. I think, I think that you have to, in terms of realistics, I think if like one of the books that I, I really love, Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, one of the things he talked about is when his parents kind of set them down that they were getting divorced, it was almost like a business meeting. They said, okay, we're doing this. Does anyone have any questions? And he almost felt like angry that they didn't, that there wasn't something a little more substantive or real or even any emotion. So I think there's a balance where you don't want to fight in front of the kids. You don't want to say horrible things about your ex or your partner or what have you. 
you, you that is important. In fact, the research on divorce and things like this is that the number one predictor statistically of how the kids do in it is are the parents talking shit about each other or not, right? And if they aren't, better chance. But I think you have to acknowledge, hey, this did happen for a reason. There, we have these difficult feelings. So you acknowledge it without making it something they're seeing in manifesting, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, because it would be weird not to acknowledge that something wasn't working. All of a sudden, right. we're just living in different houses for funsies now. <laughs> right. right, right. We, we turned into Tim Burton and Helena Bonham Carter. You know, like <laughs> right. this is, no, that would be weird. You're right, right. The prisoner. We're just never going to speak of this person again. Yeah. Real quick, I want to say hey to Jenny. Uh, She commented when we talked about kids picking up on things. She said they sure do. So thanks for being here with us. But yeah, there's certainly like, there's a lot of interesting family dynamics, absolutely kind of within this film for sure. Yeah. And and again, I really appreciated the complexity of the performances because it would have been easy to be one way or the other. For the mother to be a really shrill, flighty, to, to just be completely lost in herself. Like, again, it could have been easy for her to continue the, the, the fight against medical treatment to the point of absurdity, to where, you know, like, she's not, she has to be restrained because she refuses to let them do anything, and that, that would be ludicrous, right? And they don't do that. They kind of allow her her moment of resistance, and we don't ever really see her acquiescing to it. It just happens. But I, again, I think that's fine, because the point of the story is, is Emma's journey, not, not theirs. I mean, theirs is relevant to only insofar as it kind of assists their journey, which I kind of wonder is maybe just the kids thing, right? Because do our journeys matter? You know, as, like it, it, they matter, but like also getting the kids kind of shepherded through life is, is a big part of that, I imagine. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was, it was the girl's story. The parents were just kind of almost background characters, but important ones. Well, let's talk about her journey in particular, the setting a little bit, if, if you don't mind. Um, because I want to talk a little bit more directly about the film in, in its vision. Um, because to me, this film felt a lot like if Guillermo del Toro had made this film after having watched Skinnamarink and having less budget <laughs> than he did when he made Pan's Labyrinth. Because it reminded me of Pan's Labyrinth in a number of ways. Some of the things, even the, like the dining hall scene, you know, even though there was a different character there, but there was a dining hall. The chattering teeth creature reminded me uh, a little bit of it because it put in the teeth, right? Just like the creature in the dining hall in Pan's Labyrinth puts in the eyes. It wasn't the same creature, but there were just all these little notes and just the overall feel felt, it reminded me a lot of Pan's Labyrinth. And then certainly the the journey of, you know, the girl. So there's obviously in Pan's Labyrinth, there is a child involved, but also that I, there's just that skin and marine kind of ethos to it of, the young child that is on its own, because that was sort of the whole thing in Skinnerick. These kids left on their own. Well, this girl finds herself in this strange place, except it had a better, in my view, more of a story and a better artistic vision than Skinnerick did, but at least captured maybe one of the things about Skinnerick that was one of its interesting points is that sort of that ch- the child on its own sort of a thing. Right. I mean, that's fair. I, I would say the only way it would capture Skinnerink is if it just did this <laughs> right. for about 45 minutes. <laughs> right. But right. yeah, I, I can see the, the child's, the children in peril thing, uh, part of it. Absolutely. I, I was actually thinking the film it reminded me most of was Mad God. Oh, a little bit of that too. I saw. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. N- not as nihilistic as Mad, as Mad God, but still there was definitely that sort of industrial wasteland sense of it. I, I thought Teeth was a really great villain. 
um, really uh, like unsettling part. Something tells me it might be similar to something in David Lynch's uh, third season of Twin Peaks. I feel like there was something in there that was similar. That's it's kind of the teeth thing is kind of ringing a bell, but I can't I can't place it. I haven't seen uh, season three in a while. One of the Cinnabites as well. It's a little bit of that. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. The I think Chatterer or something. Yeah, I I agree. Though I thought that kind of protect our antagonist was uh, was really well done. I think that would just from a pure kind of visuals and creepiness, that character was probably one of the strongest things that they did in the film overall. Yeah, the princess towards the end didn't work for me quite as well. Yeah. No. Yeah. The Chatterer, though. Yeah. Oh, Chatterer. Yeah. 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 Sorry. The teeth creature. Teeth, yeah, it's credited as teeth. Teeth, okay. Teeth to me was the strongest point of the visual and like that that character, the way it was presented, the the, the really kind of rapid movements that they did. That you know is obviously a common thing in films that were also very kind of uh, uncomfortable. So, oh wait, we've got an interesting question though here. Okay, Elijah J. Burnett. Good evening, gentlemen. You've been given a two point five million budget to make your own horror film. What social topic are a must for you, and who do you think is going to be your biggest influence for creative style? Wow, what an interesting question. So I know this answer because I actually tried to write the screenplay once. Then we run with it, Brent, and then I'll just tell you why it's wrong. Okay, nice. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, but this sounds like college. So yeah. <laughs> so I would I have an idea. I would want to make a, a giallo, like a modern day giallo set in the Rust Belt of America. So I, I like the idea of setting, of having like a like the the strong, striking giallo visuals but telling a story about a young man who takes identities and uses them to deconstruct communities. And he's got a thing against older people, so he, he primarily targets older people, especially older, uh, older men, like boomer men. And he believes, he sees himself, he's got no morals whatsoever. He sees himself as a, like a, a free radical in a, or in a cell, like he is completely outside of the system and he just goes where he's directed and he takes the people he feels deserve to be taken. He has no morals. He has no qualms about anything. He's, he's like, sort of like a, like a, like a really brutal Mr. Ripley, but not as smooth. And it's, it's set the, op- I, I actually, again, I wrote like, I don't know, 10 pages of a screenplay once. I, I'm not, I've never really kind of done that thing, but uh, it starts off in a junkyard and he throws a man into a car shredder, into a car crusher. And I kind of give up on that because that is, spoiler, too bad. Uh, when they, in Halloween ends, that is how they finally get rid of Michael Myers, is they throw him into a car crusher. And uh, I watched that and thought, damn it. Not that I was ever going to finish the screenplay anyways, but, but yeah. So that would, my Rust Belt sort of Pennsylvania set, giallo, highly stylized about an amoral killer and uh, a policewoman who has never really lived up to her full potential and just kind of has always done the safe thing, become a cop, but done it in a very safe way. She goes up against this guy who's completely unmoored from anything that makes up her world. Okay. So for me, it would touch on like social themes of like moving, like the society kind of being stuck in a certain era, like not older people, not letting go. Mm. What happens when social decay kind of produces Des- people who who do- who don't really have any connection to the the society, they feel like completely outside it, so they just decide that f- they're free from its restraints. So that's that's my idea. That's much better than the thing I got. Uh, <laughs> I 
if I were going to come up with something, I, it would probably be something where I would try to explore. And we talked about this on one of our previous podcast episodes. I would try to explore kind of the deep feelings I I have about trains. We talked about this, like I grew up where I grew up. Oh yeah, we was near a railroad track. And something I think about, like at that age, I think I was kind of scared of the dark and ghosts and things like this. Although I'd never seen anything like that. And something about the wailing of a train, you know, in in the background, um, the horn and stuff, somehow got embedded in my head and to me is eerie, right? So I would probably try to find a way to explore that in a way that really kind of grabs that part of my, that memory in my brain and just really captures it. It somehow conveys that feeling I have of kind of eeriness about, I'm not sure how I would accomplish it. It would probably be something a little more supernatural horror where the, the sound of the train somehow kind of you know, it's very foreboding and it kind of is a precursor to something happening. And then maybe the train never arrives or doesn't arrive, but you just keep hearing it. And then when it finally does arrive, whatever the big event happens, happens. This is me spitballing, but it would have something to do with that. But yours is so much more well-developed. I think there's something, there's something to yours. I think if you have like a train, say like a little bit like 38 days or 30 days a night, you've got vampires who sort of ride the rails. Even could even set it during the Dust Bowl vampires who ride the rails from town to town and that this idea that you know they are sort of social collapse right like if you if we don't take care of these larger problems you end up this sort of uh, you know they lived in the cities and they just kind of focused on the cities but when the cities start to fall apart they got on the trains and now the vampires are riding the rails with everyone else and they are taken apart yeah just taking people apart and you could also even kind of visually parallel it to something like uh Sin Nombre, where the, uh, the kids were traveling from Central America up to Mexico on the train in order to try and cross the border into the U.S. So there's that, uh, you could sort of use some of that visual language. It's a, it's a great movie, by the way, if you haven't seen it, Sin Nombre. Okay, interesting, Sin Nombre. Uh, Modest Moose saying uh, about uh, the film that you referenced, Ah Yes, Michael Myers, the baddie <laughs> who's only surefire death is probably at the hands of a tactical nuke, and then he's a car crusher, sigh, yeah. I mean, I would love to, I would pay great money to see Michael Myers ride that bomb like Slim Pickens, but I don't know how to set it up. I'm fine if they never make another Halloween movie. I like, I liked, I actually liked Halloween ends more than most people, but I'm good. I'm good. There's, there's better villains out there. There's newer villains out there. Make another Victor Crowley picture, you know, do it in a way that doesn't kill Adam Green. Just, yeah, I, I, there's, there are other things we can be doing with our horror, our horror bucks. Right, right. So, yeah. So you mentioned the princess didn't work for you. I would agree with that. That character was not particularly compelling to me. Yeah. Yeah. In any I, real way. I, I, I felt it was sort of emblematic of a larger issue, which I just thought, even though the movie was only 96 minutes, there were a couple pokey bits where I kind of felt my attention drifting a little bit, but not many, you know, it was, it was not, there was not a lot of fat on it. I, and I don't know what would have fixed it. Maybe that's just, you know, it, it has to, it has to be that way. But yeah, I felt like the princess, eh, not all that necessary. And maybe could have, you know, I, who's to say, but it might, it might have improved the, the, the flow a bit. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out if she, the princess was somehow supposed to be representative of the girl in some way in her situation, but I don't I feel thought it like was they, representative of her mother. It could have been, and maybe it was, because I know that she was saying some things that her mother was saying, so, and maybe it was, but either way, I just don't feel like it hit that note effectively. 
No, I, I agree. I agree. I, I think, yeah, I think it was the mother because, you know, the, the princess lived in the tower until it was too late and you know, kind of hid in the tower. And I think, you know, the mother kind of sees herself as having gone the safe route and gotten a guy with a corporate job, but now she's alone. You know, she, there's that scene of, of her in the backyard on her birthday, just releasing balloons into the sky because there's no one around to celebrate with her, but she remembers a time when, you know, they would have parties and, and, and to be honest, I kind of identified with that, right? I, when I was younger, I had a big, as everyone does when they're younger, I had quite a big friend group and, you know, living where I live now, I just, I've lost touch with pretty much most of my close friends and, and the ones I haven't lost touch with have moved. And so I, I, you know, strongly identify with that. Cause I think it's also part of getting older, right? You lose touch with people. And unless you're all part of a common group, like you got a church or something together, or you're part of a church, you, I just think work and family obligations, we're kind of structured our family so that we don't, you know, you're meant to make everything work within the confines of the nuclear unit. And so you're not supposed to need outside people. You're not supposed to want outside people. And so I think that, I think that alienates us and I think it's really dangerous. I mean, that, I think that's a pretty widely understood sociodemographic trend that as people get older, their friendship groups kind of shrink a little bit, you know, friends move away and, and, and then we're just not, as we go, or I think we just don't engage in the kinds of activities where we make new friends as actively and we yeah. get tied up in our existing familial obligations. So that, yeah, that's absolutely something that happens. Uh, Derek, real quick, <laughs> along with what you're saying, said he had to rewatch the end from the princess scene on because he fell asleep. I had, I didn't fall asleep, but I did have to kind of rewind a little bit or, or, or go back a little bit in the stream and kind of backtrack because I kind of zoned out and just wasn't really paying attention. I'm like, and I wanted to make sure I did get what happened. So yeah, I think that was a dead spot for, I think everyone, it seems like. Yeah, I, I think so too. But again, overall, I thought there was just, the sound design was brilliant. I, I loved the music. I liked the set, uh, like the set design, production design. The performances were uniformly great. Again, that little girl was, was fantastic. I, I believe she's the director's daughter. <laughs> Mm, um, okay. yeah, uh, and just, yeah, just overall very, very impressed with the film. Uh, did you have any final thoughts? Um, just, just that, so the, the chattering teeth creature was death, right? I mean, that chasing her, right? Would you say? I wasn't sure if it was death or because when she finally meets it, she, she sort of disarms it by, by recognizing there's nothing there. You're like you're, you're, em you're empty inside. And so I wasn't sure if that was meant to be sort of like larger, like a larger thing about fear or if it was, yeah, if it was actually death. I mean, I guess it would have been death if it caught her. So, yeah, but I wasn't sure if it was like specifically death or because I don't know what the metaphor would be there then, you know, if there's nothing. Then she stares into its maw coming from a place of compassion instead of fear and overcomes it. Man, can I hug death to death? <laughs> this little girl can. I mean, I don't okay. know if you can, but she's much more adorable than you. So, I mean, that, to be fair. I don't know about that. Let's not go crazy <laughs> here. <laughs> uh, yeah. Elijah, uh, interesting question. Do you think that's what leads to xenophobia on a larger scale? Um, are you talking about maybe, was that in I reference to- I think it means the, to... the, the, friendship, the friendship thing and the, like, the narrowing of social worlds. Yeah. I think that's part of it. Perhaps. I mean, this I... is more- more Joseph's uh, uh, yeah. territory than mine. I mean, I am a sociologist, so I guess Are if you? I don't have it, yeah, have I mentioned that? No, so, never. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think, I mean, xenophobia is, I mean, it, it's when people have a sense of group threat, right? When they feel like 
their position is threat. When people feel threatened by something, whether they feel economically vulnerable, politically vulnerable, ideologically vulnerable, they feel like they're not being heard. They feel like they haven't been hugged enough. When people feel threat, they look for an other to be the target of that. And, you know, we, we have this sort of tribal psychology with in groups and out groups. And so, you know, uh, if your frame of reference becomes your nation or your what have you, or, then outsiders become that out and you blame them uh, for it. So uh, I will say, though, in, in general, as we get older, we become more vulnerable and fearful. And this is why sometimes as people get older, they are more drawn to xenophobia and all kinds of isms. So there's, there's a little bit of sociological analysis for the night. There we go. Dr. Camo bringing the science. <laughs> All right, Joseph. So uh, yeah. Any final thoughts on moon garden? Um, just that this is one of the films that I probably enjoyed more than most of them we've, we've done. I mean, there've been a number of good films, but yeah, just the, the visuals worked for me. There were just a lot of things I liked about it. You know, few minor, you know, critiques, but overall from start to finish, I found myself liking this film. Yeah, me too. I, whatever that, whatever flaws in terms of pacing, I, I feel like might've been, I think the strength of the vision and the unity of the vision was enough to more than make up for it. I think there was so much going on. And I, I hope it's doing well. I hope more people are, are seeing it because this is the kind of movie that I think people go around saying, they don't make movies like this anymore. And they do. It's just they don't have advertising budgets, so no one sees them. Yeah. yeah I, I, and that's, again, part of why I love doing this show is because we can shove these movies in front of people and go, hey, 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 watch this. Yeah, watch this. This is good. You know, this is good. Watch this. I mean, you know, it'll probably hopefully get picked up on a, by a streamer at the very least, but I'd love to see it on a big screen. I'll imagine that ship has sailed being that it played festivals a year ago. It's something else that reminded me of, and this is a little bit of a boost thing, but it reminded me of a film called The Boys in the Trees or Boys in the Trees. And folks, if you can track down Boys in the Trees, it, for whatever reason, it has very limited distribution. I was only able to rent it by using a VPN because it's not available anywhere in Canada, so I had to rent it in the US. But it's like this for teenagers. But instead of a coma, it's about two friends who separate, who were really, really close, but kind of drifted apart as teenagers. One joined the cool group. One was kind of left as an outcast. They sort of find each other on, I want to say Halloween night. And they sort of band together because some other kids are basically chasing them. But the night takes on a more magical bent the longer it goes on. And I, again, I sobbed, just sobbed. Uh, just, it, it's one of those films where you, when you realize what it's doing, where you realize like what's happening and like where it's taking you, it's, I don't know, there's just something, to me, there was something really beautiful about that. So if, if you liked Moon Garden, it's not a horror film. It's just a, it's just a drama, but it's like a magical realism drama called Boys and the Boys in the Trees. And uh, again, just a, a lovely, lovely movie. So I, I very much recommend checking that out. All right, my friend, as always, this was a blast. I, I enjoyed this one. I wasn't sure, as I mentioned to you, I, uh, I wasn't as prepared for this one as I ordinarily would like to be. My, my love for the film, I think our collective enthusiasm for the film carried the day. Where can everyone find you online? Well, you can find me on Twitter at J-O-K-O-M-O-13, Jokomo13. 
And if you happen to be in a, into NFL football, I do this thing called the Cardinal Rule. It's kind of one of my other passions, uh, Arizona Cardinals analysis. All right. I'm Largely the Truth on Instagram, Threads, and Blue Sky. I'm also on Twitter, but I don't use it anymore. You can find my other show, The Ghost Story Guys, everywhere fine podcasts live. And there was something else. Uh, I was going to say, if you are watching this on YouTube, you can also get audio versions of the show. Uh, it's They're on YouTube. You can also get an RSS feed. And we encourage you to leave reviews of the show anywhere you can on iTunes, Spotify. It helps just sort of boost awareness of what we're doing. And it also makes us feel good to see the ratings come by. So again, if you get a chance, five stars, we would very much appreciate it. Our music is all composed and performed by Elliot Wilder, performing as The Revenants. The Revenants are available on streaming platforms everywhere, or you can find them at therevenants1.bandcamp.com. Our theme song is Rest in Peace from the album Music from Big Beige, also by The Revenants. And I guess that's going to do it. Joseph, it's been a pleasure. And until next time, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together? Let me rest.